together. Um, and we were just friends for several of those years. And then, lo and behold, God was working in both of our lives individually. And um, when we returned uh, towards the end of college for one of the final summers, we kind of saw each other in a new light. And God drew us together. And so we were married in the summer of 1999. So that means this summer we will celebrate 24 years um, by God's grace. <laughs> oh, and there we are. <laughs> I had hair, yes. He did have hair. Um, and uh, there's a quote that we have come to really resonate with um, in our marriage. It's by James K.A. Smith. It reads, we've grown up together, kids raising kids, but we've also grown in faith together. We walked valleys of doubt together, mourned losses together, been humbled by parenting together, and been surprised by God in ways we wouldn't have known to dream. If I entrusted myself to the one who, never, who will never leave me or forsake me, it's because he was gracious enough to give me this partner who is the embodiment of that on the way home. I love that quote. Oh, we have a Bible. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 21 through 33 is going to be our text for today. And uh, as we read this together, uh, we're actually going to alternate um, parts as we uh, read through this text. Give me a second, I'll get there. All right. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Would you pray with me? Our good Father, may the meditations of our hearts and the words of our mouths be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And Holy Spirit, would you empower us here today to be good hearers of your word and even better doers. In Jesus' good and strong name, amen. Amen. Well, there's a lot for us to consider uh, in that passage that we just read. Um, a lot that's challenging, a lot that's even controversial. And uh, I think it's tempting uh, for us to jump right into the pragmatic details. Like, what is Paul really saying? You know, what are husbands really to do? What are wives really to do? And my fear is that when we jump right into the pragmatic details, uh, we often miss the forest for the trees. We get stuck in like mired in trying to figure out the details 
when Paul is first of all trying to help us see the big picture, and I think if we don't see the big picture, it's impossible uh, to live out the details of this passage. Uh, in verses 31 and 32, as Paul is coming to the, the conclusion of his teaching on marriage, uh, he's kind of pointing to the big picture here, where he says in ver- chapter 5, 31 and 32, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This mystery, the mystery of marriage, is profound. But Paul's saying it refers to Christ and the church. Now, uh, actually, in the scripture that was read this morning uh, during the singing time, in Ephesians 1, uh, Luke read about the mystery of Christ. That word mystery, it's used a lot in the book of Ephesians. Remember, uh, Ephesians is telling us about uh, having eyes to see reality, seeing what we don't naturally see. And Paul is writing about the mystery of Christ that was previously hidden, that God has come for us in Jesus Christ to redeem us and to restore us. But we tend to see life just through our own natural eyesight, including marriage. And so what Paul is trying to say here is there is so much going on, so much more going on in the mystery of marriage than just two people trying to work through life together. He says, actually, marriage is a signpost not a destination. Marriage is a window into a deeper reality. It's telling us a bigger story about a deeper love, about a greater covenant. And if we don't understand the bigger context of marriage, we're just going to find ourselves at odds all the time, uh, apart from this this larger story. And so what I want to do is, before we get into the details of how to live this passage, I want to take some time to really consider this bigger story that our marriages are pointing to. What is this mystery? Uh, Really, the the Bible itself is a love story, a story of covenant love that God is telling. So what is this larger story that our marriages are pointing to? And we're going to tell this uh, really uh, through four acts, Acts 1, Acts 2, 3, and 4, different segments of the story of the Bible. Um, So let's consider those. Uh, First, the bigger story of marriage, Act 1. And that's the story of creation. Um, We looked at a couple of these texts last week, so we're kind of recycling them again today because they're so important. But in Genesis 1, uh, verse 26 through 28, uh, we read, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves in the ground. Uh, A couple words I want us to take away from this passage. Key concepts to understanding the bigger story and how it plays out in our smaller stories of marriage. Uh, Those two words are mutuality and distinction. Mutuality and distinction. We see in this passage here that God makes both male and female equal in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Both men and women bear the image of God. And we are called together to partner in God's life-giving love. And we need 
together. We need one another to accomplish this. So there's mutuality in creation. Husband and wife partnering together in the mission that God has called them on. And we also see distinction, that God does not just create human beings generally, he creates male and female specifically. There's distinction in creation. And man and women can only fulfill God's mission through complementary partnership. Life-giving does not come apart from male and female reality. There is distinction and there is mutuality in the creation. And what I find is it's really hard for us as human beings to hold those two things together. There's a tension. And as you look at the history of the world, there have been many, I would say the majority of cultures, have emphasized distinction at the expense of mutuality. Male and female, very distinct, but not partnering together. The history of the world has been a sad account of there being a lack of mutuality. But there are other cultures where to accomplish mutuality, we begin to minimize distinction. And God's word holds up both, mutuality and distinction needing to be held together if we're going to accomplish God's creative purposes. Um, so the, our story, uh, creation, begins with God creating male and female to be mutual and to be distinct. The second uh, foundational passage we're going to look at is at the end of Genesis 2. It reads, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That may sound a little bit familiar because um, obviously it gets reiterated in the New Testament as well. And I think if mutuality and distinction are the two concepts from the first um, passage, um, the third concept that we'd want to keep in mind today is oneness. That the original de design for um, a husband and a wife um, in, from God's perspective included this aspect of oneness. And that's um, because it reflected the, the triune God himself. Um, you know, we worship a God that is three persons. There's distinction, um, but they are one, But it is one God. There is oneness, um, and there's that mutuality within the Godhead as well. And so we like that. We reflect that. Um, and so oftentimes we, you know, all that we can see is our own like small human existences, right? And the people that we interact with. Um, but there is this larger perspective that the scriptures give us about how we fit into this reality. It's not just about our you know, 70, 80 years on this planet and the rela relationships that we have. He had this bigger, um, bigger vision for who we were to be as, as human beings, um, that we were to reflect him in this area of oneness where we would have, you know, intimacy and vulnerability and trust. Um, but as you'll see in the next act, that was pretty short-lived. Um, all right, so act one was creation, all right? I'm going to test you as, you as we go on along, all right? Acts one, act one, creation. Act two is the fall. Um, Genesis chapter 3. This is one of the hardest um, chapters in the scripture, but one of the most insightful. Like, if you don't have Genesis 3, you don't understand what's gone wrong in the story. It's like showing up to a movie 10 minutes late, and you're like, like who's at odds with who and why? Like, Genesis 3 tells us, like, why our world is the way it is. So as hard as it is, it's really helpful. Uh, Genesis 3, verses 6 through 7, says, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
What we need to understand here first is that the sin of Adam and Eve both sinned, but the sin was different. Uh, actually, Paul goes on in uh, the letter of 1 Timothy, and he specifies the difference of their sin. I don't think I have this. Oh, I do have one. Good. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 13-14. says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, um, a lot of people have had a lot of really crazy interpretations based on this verse. Um, but it really is helpful to understand what was happening back in Genesis 3. You see, when you read through the narrative, God created Adam first. He then set him in the garden. And in the garden was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of which he was not to eat. So God had given him this instruction. After that, God then creates Eve, brings her together to Adam. Uh, they are, God essentially is the, a pastor marrying both of them. They're married, and they're living out uh, life together. So along the way, we're not sure exactly when, the scriptures don't say, but the command not to eat of the tree is passed along to Eve from Adam. And so what Paul is saying here is somehow um, Adam and Eve, uh, when they heard the serpent's temptation, heard it differently. And you can see this when Eve responds back, when Satan says, did God really say uh, you must not eat of the tree? She says, oh, we must not eat of it or even touch it. The, the command already has been twisted, corrupted. There's a misunderstanding that she has. No fault of her own. She's not like, inferior intellectually or morally. But in that moment, she is deceived by, the, by Satan's temptation. Adam is not. Adam simply says, I know what God says to do. I don't care. So there's a sin of being deceived and then doing what God says not to do. There's a sin of simply saying, oh well, I'm jumping in. And so we see that there's a, even a difference in how the sin first happens. Um, author Larry Crabb, who's also a Christian counselor, he writes about this in his book, The Silence of Adam. Like, what was Adam doing when he was not deceived, standing right there, watching this all go down? Because in Hebrew, the word is elbow to elbow. Adam was elbow to elbow with Eve as the temptation is happening. She eats, gives him the fruit, he says, oh well, and eats as well. So we see how things begin to go wrong in the story based on this initial sin. Because the result, the immediate result in the story is shame. They recognize their nakedness. Before, they were naked and not ashamed. Now they're naked and ashamed. So they hide, and then they begin to blame one another. So shame, hiding, and blame in marriage is the first consequence of this sin. And we still deal with it today. Shame, hiding, and blame. There were some other consequences that um, quickly uh, broke into the story that, that God kind of had to enlighten them about. Um, so it continues, and it says, um, later on in the, in the chapter, God comes looking, um, looking for them, and specifically it says he's looking for Adam. Um, that is the name he calls. Uh, and so, he, he, but he comes, and, and Adam, as Sam referenced, he blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent, and there's just this whole big blame game going on, and and God kind of interjects, and so he starts and says, like, to the woman, you know, God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In, your, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you'll, you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So there's some things that, you know, that are just automatic consequences. You know, we were made for this distinction, but with mutuality and oneness and to, to partner with God in, in multiplying and bringing, um, just bringing his life-giving love into the world and to those around us. And, and right off the bat, there's going to be pain in childbirth. And, and so just to, if you never have a child naturally by birth, women, um, it, doesn't it doesn't mean that you get away from the results of sin in your life. It's not, it is, obviously there's pain in childbirth. For any of you who've given birth to children, it's painful. Um, but I think it goes a little bit deeper. That represents kind of the, the, the spiritual reality of how difficult it's sometimes going to be to, to really forge good, strong relationships to bring, for to bring life into the world, to not... Um, to not just kind of try to control or try to abdicate or uh, all of those types of things are, are included. So if you never marry or you never give birth to natural children or human children, then I don't think, um, like we, we live with the results of this still today as daughters of Eve. Um, but that was one. And then, but the one that really kind of, the next two are pretty significant, and when, especially when we talk about male and, uh, male and female relationships, is that there was going to be relational strife now between the husband and wife. So instead of you know, God, God recognized that Adam should not be alone, and so kind of the pinnacle of, of creation was Eve to some degree. Like, he was kind of like, you know, she's named as a, as a helper with the Hebrew word that's only ever referred to um, of God himself in the rest of the Old Testament. Um, so Eve really has this significant role to play um, in helping to bring about God's creative and redemptive, not redemptive, but like loving intentions for the world, um, and they were supposed to kind of work together in the same direction, like they were supposed to be aligned under God's leadership, um, and, and all of a sudden now, because, they, because now they've been like, you know, God was great, but I'd like to define good and evil for myself as well, now their ideas about the dire same direction they're going to go in, they're at odds. Instead of like working alongside one another, they're, they're in conflict, they're going to be in conflict, there's going to be strife, and they're going to be pulling in opposite directions. They're going to, their desires are going to be contrary to one another. And because of the way the world was made, um, I think, and God's intention, um, and, and I think the New Testament really, sh Testament really sheds a lot of light on um, this type of principle, especially when it goes, when it talks about Jesus as the second Adam, um, there was a certain level of responsibility that I think Adam, um, as a future, you know, as the kind of precursor to Christ himself in the story, was going to have, um, that women were going to really lose. <laughs> like, we were going to lose big time. <laughs> um, so when sin entered the world, there was never, there was never, in God's plan, male dominance was not supposed to be part of the story, um, but it became the natural consequence of human beings wanting to take control from God and be their own um, leaders and gods and define their own good and evil. Um, and I think it's pretty clear to see um, historically that it's held true, um, and even in an era where women have made a lot of advance advancements, of which I am incredibly thankful, um, when I look 
at the lives of students that I work with and when I look around um, in the world around me and with, uh, with you know, friends that I have in the community and different things like that, while women have gained some things, um, it's still pretty tragic and the abuses of women are still pretty profound. Um, and I don't think that the world, even what we're being offered right now, ladies, um, as a solution for that, um, it comes up pretty woefully short. Um, and I think that that's when we get to the good news of the New Testament, where the Christian story really presents a, a better alternative pathway for us. Um, so those are kind of, and then we also turn to just the futility in work. Um, that, was, that was a natural consequence right away. We were going to just, it was, there was going to be difficulty in that. Um, and death itself, um, just that mm -hmm. physical death itself. Yeah, ha happy stuff, huh? Good news. <laughs> and when you read through the rest of the scripture, especially the Old Testament, it's hard. I mean, you just read through like hard story after hard story. There really isn't a good marriage in the Old Testament. I mean, you have like uh, Abraham and Sarah, who like every time he needs to get into a jam, he just farms his wife out and says, oh, she's my sister. And, and, and we see her taken advantage of. We see Jacob marries Leah and Rachel, and that doesn't go well. Uh, we see David and his wives, uh, Bathsheba in particular, this uh, adulterous relationship, and murder is the result. I mean, it, just, it is just one tragic story after another in the Old Testament about the brokenness of marriage, the brokenness. And as the scriptures in the Old Testament are kind of coming to this, um, well, I guess what's, what's the opposite of crescendo? I, mean, I guess the, the, the descent. Descent, descent, this valley. Um, we begin to see God saying, what you're experiencing uh, in your human relationships shows the reality between you and me. Because the prophets are filled with the analogy of God saying, I I'm the husband, and you all are the wife that's left me. Um, in Jeremiah 2, he says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? I mean, Ezekiel and Hosea, God uses incredibly graphic imagery. He likens his people to a wife who leaves her husband and pays other men for sex even though they abuse her. That's the graphic imagery of the prophets. See, the Old Testament is telling us that our small stories of marriage are filled with brokenness because the larger story of marriage between God and his people is also broken. And if that relationship, if that relationship isn't dealt with, isn't addressed, we can try all we want to fix these human relationships, and we are not going to find the love, the intimacy that we are longing for. It is found in God and in God alone. So if act one was creation, act two was the fall. Well done, you're still awake, that's good. And act three is redemption, that Christ comes for us. Um, I'm going to read again from Ephesians 5, because we see Paul um, you know, really referencing Jesus as a husband. Ephesians 5, 25-27, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is the husband who has come for his bride. This is the story of the scriptures. And we see him in his ministry even kind of hinting at 
this, this reality. I mean, his first miracle is done at a wedding. He turns water to wine. I still think, actually, at weddings today, um, there's kind of this window into a deeper reality. I mean, it's, it's funny to me that we live in a world that is continuing to devalue marriage, but we just can't get away from weddings. You know, we, we love weddings. There's something in the wedding ceremony that is stirring to our hearts because there is a deeper reality there, that, that Jesus is revealing himself at weddings. Jesus spoke of himself as a groom. He talked about what's why his disciples weren't fasting. If the bridegroom is here with you, there's going to be a party. He referenced himself as the bridegroom. And he is the, the husband who has come to be what husbands should have been all along, to be what Adam was not. Uh, Jesus did not stand silently by. Uh, Jesus did not abdicate his responsibility. Jesus did not live for self-motivated pleasure. Jesus didn't divorce his spouse when she was against him. Jesus didn't focus on his, uh, his spouse's faults. Jesus didn't domineer. Jesus gave himself up. That's the language. He gave himself up. That he might sanctify her. Cleansed. Presented without spot or wrinkle. That's us. That's all of us. All of us are this spouse who has been faithless. We've been unfaithful. And God has not stopped loving us to the point of death and takes upon himself our wrong, our sin, our faithlessness. And he does this to make us what we should be, to cleanse us. We call this the new covenant. I love that, that word. You know, marriage is a covenant. And in Christ, we have this new relationship between God and people that Jesus is, in a sense, keeping both sides of. He's faithful for us. And in this new covenant, we have this depth of love that we could not have anywhere else. I mean, who else would love us that way? Who else would love us even when we're turning our nose at them, when we are horrible to them? That's God's love for us, this faithful, giving, sacrificial love. Redemption is all about what Christ has done for us. So that's the third act, redemption. So the fourth act would be consummation. Revelations 19, verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. You see, the story of the Bible ends with a wedding. Um, Christ and his bride. The bride, God's people, are finally ready. We have been redeemed by sacrificial love and have become radiant, loving, faithful people. So marriage, as Sam said before, is not a destination, but a signpost. And this is what it's pointing to. It's pointing into this overarching story that the Bible gives us um, about God and his people. Um, so just in conclusion of this section, the larger story that we were created to live in is a love story of a God with his beloved people. Marriage is one of the ways God is pointing us to the larger story and inviting us into it. All right, act one was, act two was, act three was, and act four, all right, well done. Now that we have the big picture here, now we can begin to get into how we live in light of the big picture. Like, how can that big story shape our smaller stories of marriage? That's what Paul is writing here. He's saying, if you're married, what Christ has done should shape how you live as husband and wife. So let's kind of get into the instructions that Paul has here in 
this is, we're heading towards the off-ramp, so don't feel that we're only halfway in, all right? Um, I, I'm really going to focus on Ephesians 5.21. And what, what's unfortunate is we often jump into the instructions without seeing this verse first. Ephesians 5.21, and it's, it's kind of, it starts in the middle of, of, a, of a, another sentence. So Paul is saying, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes to talk about how husbands and wives, how this plays out in, their, in each of them. But it starts with a command to all followers of Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, so three um, things you need to know about this instruction. First, this concept of submitting is first of all for all followers of Jesus Christ. Um, that word simply means to yield your will to another. So Jesus, when he was on earth, um, he was submissive to his earthly parents. We talked about that on New Year's Day with our devotional. Jesus at the temple, uh, he did not want to do what his parents said, but he said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to follow their instruction. And he did. He submitted to his heavenly father that, that Jesus played out this principle uh, as a human being. Um, now when we come to that word, and I, I'll be the first to admit, it doesn't sound good to any of us. Uh, it probably brings up a lot of like, questions, concerns, what does that really mean? And so often we come to that word, and, and we, what we think we're asking is, who's the one in charge in this relationship? Like, who's in charge? And if we come with that question, we will have a really hard time understanding Paul's instructions, because that's not the concept of leadership in the scriptures. Matter of fact, maybe you remember the story as Jesus is walking toward Jerusalem. He's, he's, going, he's heading there, preparing to die, and he's traveling with his disciples, and on the road, the disciples start arguing among themselves about who's going to be first. Remember this story? Jesus heading to the cross, they're arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus stops, and he says to them, um, you know, this is not the way it's going to be among my followers, arguing about who's first, who's greatest, who's in charge. Uh, he says, um, uh, well, what's my place here? There we go. But he says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So for Christians, in Christian community, the question is never primarily who's in charge. The question is, how can I serve? How can I serve given the way God has made me, the gifts he's given to me? How do I serve? The world asks, who's in charge? That's not the question that Christians primarily ask. How can I serve? So first of all, all Christians are to play out this principle. We do it in the church, we do it in family relationships, but to follow Jesus Christ is to recognize my will is not my own. I have been bought by Jesus Christ. I belong to him. What he wants for me, I will do. So the whole Christian life is about learning to live this lifestyle. And Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All Christians are called to this. But the second principle to understand is that submitting is mysteriously different for husbands and wives. Mysteriously different. Paul doesn't just stop at verse 21 and say, all Christians, submit. He goes on to talk specifically to husbands and wives. If it was just a general principle, he would not have gone into specificity, but he did. There's a way that husbands live this out and a different way that wives live this out mysteriously, all right, mysteriously. Um, yeah, you can go up there. So, um, for the wives, 
Um, it talks, you know, Ephesians 5 is pretty clear, and, and he seems to, Paul is seeming to base his argument on the idea that, um, and, the, and the clear teaching of scripture that Christ is the head of, a ch- head of the church, and that somehow, mysteriously, somehow, that marriages represent this unique relationship between Christ and his church. And so, um, you know, he could have told a different story, I suppose. I mean, he is the author of the entire, you know, narrative that we find ourselves in, very many, you know, for millennia here. Um, but this is the story he chose to tell, was himself, um, you know, God, the God in the Old Testament as, you know, as the faithful husband, seeking a, seeking a people for his own, his, a wife, and then Jesus took that up as the bridegroom, and his church is called um, his body, um, but it's also called his bride. And so for me, that is very helpful. It is very helpful when I look at this passage as a woman to say, okay, um, what's really going on here? What does my marriage represent? Is it just merely about Sam and I, you know, having a good life, having a few kids, you know, making a little bit of money, taking, you know, hopefully going in the somewhat same direction, um, you know, pleasing one another, you know, is it just, is it just horizontal? Is it just us? Or is there something larger that this relationship represents? And for me, that is very, very helpful to recognize and to find myself in that larger story when it comes to this particular teaching. It's also really helpful to think about like who Jesus is, and so who Sam thus is, um, or who he represents. Now, certainly, Sam is not Jesus, and Sam, you know, (laughs) clearly not Jesus. Um, But I'm not a perfectly faithful, you know, bridegroom of Christ yet either. Like this, you can't, you you know, you can't go too far with the metaphor that, um, that it does harm in some way. But more often than not, um, I think that it can help me if I am submitting to him out of reverence for Christ um, as in that way, then I, I'm not doing it because he's like the greatest guy on the planet. Um, it's, because, it's because of Christ, and it's because of Christ that I see in him, too. Like, that helps so very much um, for me as well. And I guess I'd also want to say, just practically speaking, um, more often than not, like, this doesn't mean, like, me being, the, being in the role of the church in this scenario doesn't mean like I, I don't have any opinions, that they aren't considered, that we don't seek to make almost every decision together because I would probably say 95 to 97 percent of our life um, is headed in the same direction. There isn't a lot of conflict coming up around those things because thankfully by God's grace we're both submitting out of reverence for Christ. Like we are recognizing Christ as our ultimate head. Um, so that means, like, certainly, if Sam was to ask me to do something contrary to Christ, that Christ is my, Christ is my head. You know, Christ is head of his church. Ultimately, I am, you know, I answer to him. He is the one that sacrificed himself for me, loves me, you know, redeemed me, all of those things. So there are times, this is where kind of the, you know, it might break down slightly, where if I'm being asked of something that is not in accordance with Christ, well, certainly that's not going to happen. But for me, what does happen in those, I don't know, three to five percent of the times in our marriage where we've really sought to make a decision together, and I would say most of the time, it's been things we really were unsure about. Neither of us had a strong feeling about what God wanted in that situation, and we were seeking Christ separately, we were seeking Christ together, 
and we still just came to different places, there were, there were times where I have specifically said, in, okay, like, I'm just gonna relinquish some control here. Because I think when we look back at Eve, Eve kind of took matters into her own hands. I mean, Adam certainly was held to a greater responsibility. The Bible clearly teaches in the New Testament that the sin entered the world through Adam and that Christ is the second Adam. Like that, there, is some, there was something there mysteriously in the story that God is telling us that Adam had a stronger sense of, you know, had a stronger place of responsibility in that. But it wasn't that Eve wasn't responsible at all. I am certainly incredibly responsible. Um, but in those moments, because of the story I find myself in, and maybe the story could have been different, but it just doesn't seem to be true in scripture. This just holds truth to me is that, um, He's going to bear some responsibility. If I say, okay, I'm not sure about that. Um, I think maybe we should do this. And I, and, but, I, but I say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this, like we're going to go that, we're going to head in that direction. It's not sinful. Neither of us are trying to do something sinful. Um, I just find that it's really helpful for me to pray. I have often prayed, if I'm wrong about this, God, then change my heart. If he's wrong about this, then change his heart. Um, so the, but I think for me, that, that piece of, that really, that overarching story that the Bible gives us, that Christianity gives us, um, it just, it's so good. I mean, it, Jesus, nobody valued women like Jesus valued women. No one did. And the whole reason that we have any advances as women today is because of Jesus. Like, the Christian ethic is, you can go to any other belief system, and there's no reason there's no reason, no logical reason by why which we shouldn't still just live in the dark ages with how women were treated. Um, so because of all of those things, I think, yeah, this can be a little challenging concept in teaching, but it's got to be good. And I really have found it to be good in our marriage. 24 years later, and there, it was not always easy. It wasn't. Um, I just, and, and we've, we've gone back and forth a lot because we don't always meet the gender stereotypes and we're not just naturally traditional, and, you know, it's not just like we fell into this, um, but I just have gained um, just a lot of confidence in the goodness of God um, in this teaching. Hmm. Now we move on uh, to how God calls men or husbands uh, to live this out, and I want to pause here at the, just before I dive fully and say, uh, unfortunately, what Wendy has talked about has been used in a lot of um, settings um, poorly. Um, in this passage, Paul is speaking to women as wives, and then he speaks to men as husbands. And it was not, husbands make your wives do this. He talks directly to the wives. They're accountable to God. Then he talks directly to husbands. And I think there is a principle here that if we are responsible for our actions before God and relinquish what the other person has to do, that's the way to live this out. It, we really kind of get into harm when we're trying to force God's will upon the other person. So for husbands, I mean, honestly, we take this seriously. I mean, guys, this is, this is a high call. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I mean, that just makes me shudder. When I think about the depth of Christ's love and sacrifice, the way he gave up uh, his rights, his privileges for me, laid himself down. Um, we're called as husbands to sacrificial love. Um, I'm not going to, I could spend a long time on this, I won't. Let me just tell you three things, the ways I try to live this out. I think this means 
the husbands need to be the first ones to say, I'm sorry and I forgive you. Uh, whenever I get into a disagreement, it doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen, my immediate tendency is to think about what it is that she has done wrong and to focus on that and then also remember all the things like it that she's done wrong in the past. You know, file drawer comes open to my mind. And I say things like, you always do, or you never do, like always and never. And those just have to leave the vocabulary of a Christian. Because for especially a Christian husband, we're recognizing Jesus has already paid for sin. And if Jesus has paid for sin, I'm going to take the first step in my marriage towards reconciliation. Even if she's not moving that direction, I can recognize what I have done and that Christ has forgiven me. And so I, I want to be the first to step towards reconciliation, saying I'm sorry, saying I forgive. I want to be the first to be responsible, whatever responsibility looks like, making sure that my family is heading in a good direction. Again, not focusing on what my wife could or should be doing, but what am I doing? So there to be responsibility in my family. And then third, the first one to pursue Christ. The first one to say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I, I'm following him, and I want my family to follow him too. I can't make that happen for everyone, but this is the direction I want to go. Uh, full confession time here, even as a pastor, there's times that I'd prefer not to pray. You know, I've had a bad day. I'm thinking we should pray together. Eh, I just don't want to. It's in those moments that I realize, you know what? I, I, there needs to be an initiative that I take to lead us in a spiritual direction. And sometimes it just goes against the grain. But I think God is calling husbands to this kind of initiative. First to say I'm sorry, first to be responsible, first to pursue Christ. Lastly, as we, as we finish up here, submitting is for all believers. It's, for, it's mysteriously different for husbands and wives. And submitting is only possible out of reverence for Christ. This teaching, honestly, is harmful if it wasn't for this piece. Because we are primarily called to submit ourselves to Jesus Christ. He's the perfect spouse. I mean, we're going to wrong one another. Every human marriage is flawed, is broken. We cannot fully entrust ourselves to an imperfect person. But there is a perfect person. Jesus Christ himself has given himself to us. And when we tr entrust ourselves to him, we find in him the love that we long for. And therefore, we're able to live with an imperfect spouse because they're not the source of all of our love. We can be faithful to someone who's not perfect. We can forgive someone who continues to do wrong things because we have the love of Christ. So Paul says here that we do this out of reverence for Christ. So in conclusion, for those of you here today who are married, let the big story of Jesus and his love shape your marriages so that others are pointed to the faithful love of Christ. For all of you, in some way, that will require uh, yielding your will to Christ. For those of you who aren't married, now some of you who aren't married will be married someday. Don't wait for that day to start working on these principles. Marriage doesn't take away sin, only Jesus does. And our culture kind of says, you know, live it up until you're married, then be responsible. Bad idea. We're just practicing bad character. Practice faithfulness now. Practice pursuit of Christ now. Practice being the spouse you want to be when you're actually married. And for some of you who aren't married now, you may not be married um, here in this earth. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians that there's a gift in marriage and there's a gift in singleness. That may be hard to get your mind around, but you know what? Marriage is not a destination. It's a signpost. 
It's pointing us to the deeper love. And if you have Christ, you're in on the real deal. That's the ultimate reality. Our marriages now are temporary. They will not be eternal. Christ and his church are. Focus on Christ. Focus on his love for you and all that we have in him. Well, we have gone a long time today. Sorry. It's her, I, it's her fault. It's totally Sorry. my fault. <laughs> is, that, is that blaming? Yes. Okay, all right. <laughs> we'll, we'll confess that. All right. Thank you for hanging in there. Uh, let's close in prayer and then a closing song.